judge doesn't order, I cannot speak, please. I'll be happy to once he lifts it. Bombshell decision. Feels great to finally smush that cucaracha. The businessman versus the commissioner. Miami on the hook for millions. There are still pockets of this country where some Americans have never met a Jewish person. Hate in the crosshairs. The plan direct from the White House and the questions. I think we did pretty dang good for the American public. Crisis averted. I think we got the best deal that we could with the cards that we have. What does the debt deal mean for South Florida? You guys can start cheering, right? Florida abortion restrictions and the race to put choice on the ballot for Florida voters to decide. The big news of the week and the newsmakers live this week in South Florida. Good Sunday morning. I'm Glenna Milberg. What a week for a lineup of your elected officials who all faced accusations of doing wrong from abusing the power of their positions to lying to the people they're supposed to be serving. And that includes the former mayor of Plantation, Lynn Stoner, who turned herself in on charges related to doing favors for a developer while she was in office. It includes North Miami Beach's mayor, Anthony DiFilippo, arrested and accused of voting from an address in a city where he did not live and possibly the county where he did not live. This was a bought and paid for massive political witch hunt by political opponents of the mayor. He voted illegally three times. And what may be the bombshell of all of them is the multi-million dollar civil judgment after weeks of testimony against Miami Commissioner Joe Carollo. Jurors in that federal court case decided evidence showed the commissioner was liable for violating the First Amendment rights of two business owners by targeting their properties with code inspectors and fines as payback for their support of a political rival. The jury awarded more than $63 million in damages to those businessmen, including one best known for the popular Little Havana Bar and Club called Ball and Chain. Witnesses in the case had included a former city employees, Miami's former city manager, and several former police chiefs. Judge has an order. I cannot speak, please. I'll be happy to once he lifts it. Commissioner Carollo insisted to jurors that every action he took was for the health and safety of residents. And we were hoping the commissioner would join us today. He did not respond to our invitation, but Bill Fuller did. And he's here to talk about the significance of the case that he and his business partner took on with attorney Courtney Carpio and both join us today. Um, and we appreciate you both spending a little bit of your Sunday with us. And I understand it might have been a late night last night. Is that true, Bill? It was. Good morning. Yes, it was. We were uh, celebrating into the wee hours last night on Cayocho at the Ball and Chain. So, Courtney, welcome to the show. Um, for mm -hmm. observers of Miami's drama on all its different levels, and not everyone is, but, um, but for those who do, this almost bill seemed like a mission for you and your partner, Martin P. Pania. Is it fair to call this a mission? Uh, this this was uh, this was a long, hard-fought five years. Um, it was uh, pure political payback. It was uh, our names being run through the mud. Tremendous reputational damage. Tremendous harassment. And um, we we feel a little bit of vindication, reputational vindication now. Um, there's still battles to be fought with the city because there's other individuals in the city that are part of this corruption. 
And um, but this was this was a big win, and this is the first big win in this year-long battle. And we feel great right now. We we feel truly vindicated that the jury um, saw right through uh, all of the allegations that were made. And since the commissioner is not here, I feel compelled to say that his team said he is looking at appealing. Not a huge surprise. Courtney, describe why you decided to take this <clears throat> to a federal court. Why is this a federal case? Instead of going the route of a state court, maybe, you know, as Bill was mentioning, a public corruption type accusation. Uh, good morning, Glenna. First of all, my name is Courtney Caprio. Um, so uh, thank you for having us. Did, did I mispronounce that? I'm my right. apologies. Okay. <laughs> I'm reading my own chicken scratch. <laughs> That's all right. I've been doing that for the last uh, since April 10th. People call time. me Glinda the Good, so you know oh, I get I get that. So why 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 federal court? How would that decision make? This is our constitution. This is the First Amendment, and this case reverberates throughout the nation because we had a elected official abusing his power to punish Bill Fuller and Martin Pena for opposing him, for supporting his political rival. And that violates the First Amendment. So federal court was necessary to protect our federal constitution. This case has ramifications that are greater than just the city of Miami and, and public corruption, even though that is at issue. What we had here was a, a tyrant that was trying to use his power and weaponize the entire city against Bill Fuller and Martin Pena, all because they opposed him in an election. And that is very serious. And we are so pleased and vindicated that the jury understood that what was at stake was the First Amendment in this trial. So this is federal court where for people like me, we kind of say, oh, because there are no cameras allowed and there are no microphones allowed. And it's very difficult to um, comprehensively cover a federal court case. And, and anyone who was, was there firsthand every day. Um, and so they might have seen the former city manager and former police chiefs testifying on, on your side. And, um, and, and you had text messages and you had uh, communiques in the city. And, and the things that, that the jurors heard and that the people watching heard were really eyebrow raising and begs the question, what are the, um, the, the city, uh, city attorney now and the city manager now and all the city employees now, are, are they seeing something different? Why don't we hear and see publicly now what we heard in that courtroom, Bill? Oh, or, or Courtney, take your oh, no, go ahead, Bill. I'll, I'll, Bill Fuller can handle that one. No, I mean, look, the, the way that Carroyo has been able to maintain his power uh, in the city of Miami is through a small network of individuals that have been promoted. Um, the city manager and the city attorney are a part of his apparatus that allows him to conduct this abuse. Um, and it's these same individuals that are continuing to protect him that are now supporting the concept of paying for his appellate and his legal fees. They've spent millions of dollars, probably more than four or five million. We've only heard of two to uh, already defend him. And the jury has spoken loud and clear, and it really it needs to stop. Every single one of these individuals need to be held accountable. They need to recognize that a jury in a federal system found him liable, and they should be doing a full-blown investigation to the city. This should not just be about continuing to protect a corrupt uh, commissioner any further. A full-blown investigation needs to happen in the city from all commissioners, from the mayor, to really understand what's going on behind city hall's doors. 
So let me um, let me expand on that a little bit. But first, um, again, because the commissioner is not here, we did invite him, and I, and I do like to have a very comprehensive, multi-sided conversation here on this program. But I will say that his defense is a very familiar one that we've heard from him. And we've covered Joe Carollo and his actions and his decisions a lot. Um, we have covered things like um, a, a protest at a park that he was opening and people dressed like chickens, one of whom was arrested. Um, and he fully supported that because he said he was there doing a great thing for the city opening this park. He also very recently proposed a homeless city, a homeless community on environmentally challenged Virginia Key. Um, he made a real case against all these protesters that this would be a very good win-win for the city. So Joe Carollo consistently says that he does what he does is for the health and safety and benefits of the people he serves in the city. Do you want to respond to that? I can tell you. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney, please. I'll respond to that. Uh, we had a mountain of evidence in our trial. It was overwhelming that what he was doing in, in connection with Bill Fuller and Martin Pena for exercising their First Amendment right was completely unacceptable. So for him to, you know, use his office and try to again squelch speech by arresting the chicken who was protesting and also exercising his First Amendment right, to me, is just a pattern and practice of abuse. The um, and I will say, we when we were texting back and forth, the commission, and not for this case, uh, for the record, but on all these other things, the commissioner tells me that um, he believes reporters are biased against him. He believes reporters want to defame him um, and see him kicked out of office. He consistently, at one point in City Hall, he asked in public whether I was the Wicked Witch of the East or the West. Um, this is a, a consistent narrative of his. Bill, do you, do you see press being unfair to him? I really don't. I think that the press, especially as we got to trial, there's been a lot of allegations on both sides for years. Um, and that's why this is so vindicating for us. I think the press, you know, went in there daily, um, you know, Channel 10 did a great job of doing that as well, um, and seeing all the facts for themselves and then having the jury, uh, you know, come with, to their determination. But I think the press has been looking at it fairly. I think that the concept that he says that, you know, the, the media is defaming him, that's all part of his narrative always to smear his, what he perceives as any opponent, whether it be the media, whether it be a business person, whether it be anybody else and a politician, even his own employees of the city of Miami, he often smears when they, uh, you know, stand up to him. So th this is just part of the Joe Croyo uh, modus operandi. Um, I have a few more questions. I hope you will stick with us for a couple of minutes. We are up against a break, so stay tuned. We will have more with Bill Fuller and Courtney Caprio when we come right back. with businessman, Miami businessman, Bill Fuller, and Miami attorney, Courtney Caprio, who just won a multi-million dollar verdict against Commissioner Joe Carollo for uh, infringing on First Amendment rights under the color of his job. Bill, I, I wonder if you would weigh in from your perspective as a longtime business owner in Miami. Joe Carollo is beloved among a lot of voters who keep voting him into office. Um, we've been there when he 
serves paella to the elderly people in the buildings. We see that he really does have an eye toward constituent services. But, but because of all that transpired in your lives in the past couple of years, wh what do you make of that? And do you hold voters responsible for what happens in the city? I, I absolutely do hold the voters responsible. I think that this is something that as stakeholders in the city of Miami, we have to look very carefully at, especially moving into the next couple of generations. Um, those voters that have been so strong in reelecting um, the legacy politicians like Joe Carroyo, um, these are generally the older voters, um, the ones that live at you know some of the senior centers. And this is the centers that they specifically focus on. And like Joe Carroyo, for example, had not lived or had never lived uh, in Little, or at least in the last 25 years had never lived in Little Havana. And he helicoptered in, uh, was able to mount a political operation to uh, appease and work with these voters. And by a margin of just a, a more, little bit more than 200 was able to win and come into office. And then, like you said, he, he does have a practice and pattern of giving out thousands and thousands of turkeys uh, every year. Um, and hams to, to these individuals. And really, uh, um, I don't begrudge them because at the end of the day, they um, they don't really know what's going on specifically with how he's abusing his power uh, against us. And um, it's, you know, it, it's a tale of, of two worlds, really. But uh, we, we need to change the way that we operate in the city. And this this is it's got to start with removing uh, Joe Carroyo. Courtney, can you take us through the damages? I mean, that's an, an eye-popping amount, more than $60 million between the two businessmen. Um, most of it punitive damages. And the city of Miami, um, my understanding is, because he was in court as a commissioner, would be on the hook for those damages, already on the hook for more than $2 million in his attorney's fees. Take us through what, how that happens and who, who is responsible for paying that. Well, first of all, the damages were awarded because they were commensurate with what it, what's happened here over five and a half years of relentless attacks day in and day out, nights, weekends. Mr. Fuller would leave his residence to rush to ball and chain where there are SWAT teams that were mobilized to go into that business with flashlights purely to intimidate and punish. The reputational harm of a commissioner speaking from a dais, a public official defaming a private individual, abusing his position of power to give that defamatory statement credibility is just ridiculous. And the jury saw through that and understood the ramifications that my clients have had to suffer day in and day out for five and a half years, emotionally, reputationally. Those were big components, but the punitives were, exactly like you said, Glenna, the biggest component, and that was for deterrence. Punitive damages are also known as exemplary damages, to set an example. And here, the jury heard the, heard the evidence, the mountain of evidence, and weighed it and decided and determined that these amounts of damages for punitive damages for deterrence, which were over $45 million, were necessary in order to send a message throughout the United States that elected officials cannot abuse their power to punish those who oppose them. 
That's the message loud and clear. And that is the foundation of our democracy in the United States of America. And so elected officials can abuse their office to silence and to muzzle that our democracy crumbles. In a, in a so practical the sense, were, though, the damages, I, the damages were very necessary here. Those that that amount was was completely commensurate with the offense. Uh, under, understood the argument for the amount. But practically speaking, what, what are the chances that ultimately this gets paid and by whom? Right now, um, we we are unclear. We we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow with these damages. We are not in the city of Miami. Our job was to protect and preserve the First Amendment and to send the message loud and clear. Of course, it's our hope that we collect on these damages. But at that at the same time, there's a lot of things going on in the city that will determine how those are paid, if they are paid, when they are paid. So that is a separate fight that we are going to undertake to ensure that the damages can be collected. AKA. But Glenda, let, let me be very clear here. We want Joe Carollo to pay for this liability. This should not be the burden of the taxpayers of the city of Miami to pay for this. The jury found that Mr. Carollo was liable. He was malicious. He knew that he was that he was causing harm to us over all this time. He is responsible for this payment. If the city of Miami steps in to cover this uh, uh, liability, then it's it, it'll never it'll never chill another politician from abusing their power. They will simply be found liable in court knowing that the municipality will come in later and backstop that settlement. It doesn't matter if Joe Corio spends the last $50,000 from his pocket. We prefer that it comes directly from him and not from the taxpayers of the city of Miami. Bill Fuller, Courtney Caprio, sure appreciate your time today, AKA this is not over yet and we will be watching. Appreciate it. Thank you, Glenda. Thank, Thank you, you Glenda. Up next, an unprecedented plan in the face of unprecedented hate. A first-of-its-kind national strategy to combat anti-Semitism unveiled this week comes as a staggering rise in hate crimes is directed at Jewish communities. The White House plan outlines more than 100 calls to action. In concept, the plan was widely well received, but there are questions and concerns about the details. And we take that to South Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who is live with us today and who also sponsored a resolution recognizing Jewish American Heritage Month month that passed the house unanimously this week congresswoman i'll put my dentures back in good morning great to have you good morning great to be with you so this white house plan comes on this you know the fbi stats are eye-popping a record number of acts of hate specifically against jewish communities why is that what is the context why now well, I think it's uh, it's part of a, a couple of reasons, and I'm really glad to be able to be here to talk about this. And I'm so proud of the Biden administration and President Biden's effort uh, in recognizing how virulent anti-Semitism has become and that a U.S. strategy to counter anti-Semitism was necessary. Uh, I mean, just in, in Broward County and Miami-Dade counties alone, we've had a 47% increase in Miami-Dade County and a 52% increase of anti-Semitic incidents in Broward County at 63% nationwide of religious hate crimes are you know and hate incidents have been have been targeted at the Jewish community. So why do so, what do you why now what do you attribute that to is there does anyone have a, a reason for that? I mean I think a lot of it is attributable to the spread of hate online because before you know we were able to communicate virtually most of the hate communication and speech 
really was word of mouth and and you know not as easily spread now unfortunately because of the algorithms of social media companies they are actually boosted because the, they, they send these messages to eyeballs that that want to see them and then they feed more and more con content i'm actually the co-chair of the interparliamentary task force to combat online anti-semitism and uh, we've had a hearing in in the united states in the capital last fall we have another one coming up at the end of june in belgium because uh, it's critical that we combat this worldwide because really there are no borders when it comes to the spread of hate because of the ability for it to race around the internet and and the algorithms that promote it so we need policies in place for that type of spread of hate as well yeah so hate and hate crimes is um and, and the work to combat that is kind of a unifying issue in congress you see it especially with your um your resolution this week got bipartisan unanimous support so that's kind of a no-brainer so why is the addressing anti-semitism specifically so much more complicated and and especially within the progressive wing of your own party why is it that complicated well the approach to dealing with hate is very multifaceted I mean, it's there's no one-size-fits-all solution which is why the, the president's plan to combat uh, anti-semitism is multifaceted we needed a national strategy uh, you know i had a a summit that i planned and hosted just this past week here in south florida because you've got to really bring these uh, approaches to combating hate local. I mean, we brought together interfaith leaders, law enforcement, uh, national security experts, uh, digital experts to really come together so that we could more granularly dive deeply into how do you get to the root causes of hate and how do we present a united front against it? And that really has to be done very close up so that people understand, you know, how to combat the hate that they're seeing so often and so regularly, because it's intimidating. And it's also often, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty around what an individual can do to fight back against that hate. So the, the White House plan is about 100 recommendations or so. It looks like it includes education, it includes awareness, uh, cultural exchange, and of course there's a component of safety and security measures for Jewish communities. The biggest criticism, it appears, is that the actual definition of anti-Semitism was sort of in play, and, and that's a bit confusing. The president did not use what the definition that is broadly accepted from the International Holocaust Remembrance uh, Awareness, which is the definition of anti-Semitism in, in mainstream use. Why was that not, why was that such an issue for just the basic definition? Well, I think it's important not to cloud the robust nature of the strategy with, um, a, a hyper focus on the definition but i will correct you and just say that the the strategy does embrace the ira definition which includes zionism and anti-zionism specifically uh, as a form of anti-semitism and that when you associate zionism with jew hatred that that is anti-semitism and that we have to make sure that we call it out they did recognize other strategies, one in particular that wasn't that different from the uh, from the IRA definition. So uh, overall, th th that should not cloud that there was a not only a national strategy, but President Biden committed his administration to implement it within a year. 
And so making sure that we take that holistic approach, approach Klena, at the federal, state, and local level, and through the private sector and across uh, faith, faith and cultural communities is absolutely critical, critical for us to fight anti-Semitism successfully in all forms of hate. So that, that kind of segues into my next question, and a lot of people probably have not seen this video of the commencement speech at the City University of New York. Um, it went kind of viral despite apparent attempts to keep it from doing so. The student speaker uh, literally called for a fight against capitalism, against racism, uh, against Zionism around the world, and included in her speech some anti-Semitic tropes that got wide applause at this commencement ceremony, including from some of the CUNY staff. Uh, this is a public school in New York. What do, you, what do you make of that, and how does that fit into this new plan? Well, the speech and its content was revolting, and, and it, it was anti-Semitic. And the fact that it took the CUNY leadership to two weeks to even respond and come out uh, against it and, and, and condemning it, that was uh, outrageous in and of itself. Um, there's no question that she should not have been chosen as the commencement speaker. Um, she supposedly submitted her, her speech in advance. I don't know how much of it, because she went longer than she was supposed to. But um, this is the kind of problem we have on college campuses. And our summit this past week had a panel about uh, anti-Semitism on campus, and it's really a problem. But the Biden administration actually just took action against the University of Vermont and has opened investigations into uh, anti-Semitism at, uh, at GW in Washington, D.C., and other universities. And, and at the University of Vermont, they, they actually took action against the, the, the university because they failed, grossly failed, to protect Jewish students on campus. They had a, te a, teacher's, a teacher's assistant who was actually docking Jewish students uh, for participation, not giving Jewish students credit, uh, applauding that a an Israeli flag was taken down from uh, it was yanked down from a student's room, um, and and they just really patently ignored and failed to follow up and investigate as federal law requires that that hate or hatred towards Jewish students. So that's what's so important is that we make sure that we use the levers of power to that are necessary to combat hate in all of its forms. And anti-Semitism, unfortunately, when it comes to religious hate, has had the most significance and, uh, and has spread the most. A lot of work to do. Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, appreciate your time this morning. Always great to see you. You too, Glenna. Thank you so much. All right. Up next, a little south and across the aisle, Congressman Carlos Jimenez is here to talk about averting one crisis and working on another. Congress passed significant immigration changes with plenty of Florida input as migrant and border issues dominate campaigns on both state and presidential campaign trails. Here to talk about that and a lot more, South Florida Congressman Carlos Jimenez. Congressman, always great to have you on the program. So great to be back. So I want to get into that, but first, um, a quick question about this 11th hour crisis averted and the deal that keeps the U.S. from defaulting on its debts in a, an historical way. Um, you were a yes vote on that deal, but um, the Florida delegation, members of Congress, were really split on that. A lot of your upstate colleagues were ready to go off the cliff. What do you make of that? 
Um, well, I don't think much of it. I think we have differences of opinion, obviously. Look, um, sometimes you have to uh, negotiate. Sometimes uh, you have to deal with the cards that you're dealt. We Republican uh, majority is only uh, one half of one third of government uh, is in Republican hands. And so when you have that, and when you have a president that said there's never going to negotiate, and then once you get up to the negotiating table and actually does negotiate, you can't expect to get everything that uh, that you asked for. And so I think it was a, a, a decent deal for the American people. We need to get America back on track. We're going off the financial cliff. That doesn't mean that we've averted it. What it means is that we've diverted it for a while. But, uh, but eventually, we need to really get our house, financial house in order. We cannot continue to borrow trillions of dollars to pay for the trillions of dollars that we borrow. That is, uh, that's financial suicide. And any household will tell you that, that has a household budget. You can't borrow money to pay for the mo money that you were borrowing. And it's so, kind of like uh, a Ponzi scheme. Uh, yeah, we need to get off that. So let me ask you, I want to go back to compromise, because you know you've been on the program. We, we love to kind of spread the love in a very divisive time. Um, you've been Team McCarthy since day one. I, I actually remember talking about that with you on this program. Um, do you credit this compromise to both the speaker and the president? And, and might this compromise, no one gets everything, but everyone gets a little something, is, is that a possible blueprint for fixing the division right now? Well, look, the only way that you can get compromised if you have leverage, and now we have leverage because we hold the, you know, majority in the House of Representatives. And yes, I do credit the Speaker. Nobody thought that we would ever, you know, increase the debt limit to begin with. Remember, that was passed purely on partisan lines. Uh, we asked for a whole bunch of other things in order to increase the, the, the debt limit. But uh, that brought the president to the table. Now, if some of my colleagues thought that, hey, we had to get everything that we had passed, I think they were a little bit unrealistic. Uh, and so when it, you know, the deal came back and said, we reduced the future deficit by $2 trillion. We got major uh, reform on, on uh, permitting, which is really necessary for our energy industry, both renewable and our fossil fuel uh, industry to get back on track and other projects that we need to get going much quicker than before. Uh, we've got some, some, uh, some hooks there. Uh, if the administration decides to spend more than $100 million, uh, they have to pay for it. They just can't issue all these edict, edicts. And so, yeah, I think we got some really good things out of it. I think the president got some good things out of it, too. Look, some of the permitting issues, it's not just us on the uh, on the Republican side that wanted our uh, fossil fuel industry and permits to go faster, pipelines, et cetera. But he also had renewable permits that are being, you know, uh, hung up in, uh, in, the, in the federal permits, the permitting process, which is, by the way, it's legendary. Uh, it takes years and years and years to get anything done. And so we streamlined that. So, yeah, I thought it was a good deal, and it was a good bipartisan deal. We weren't really happy, 100% happy. The president's not 100% happy. That makes it a good deal. <laughs> Uh, I, that's, yeah. a, that's a, a good tweet for you today. Um, Congressman, yeah. I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you've been really strong on the border issue. You've been to the border. Um, you work on immigration a lot. And you live in an immigrant-rich uh, district and a uh, little end of the peninsula of our state. The recent bill that passed the House, the Secure Border Act, um, that was sponsored by your colleague, uh, Mario Diaz-Balart, Republican of Miami. It has a lot of things about border security, 
restarting the border wall, building um, resources for enforcement, but it also takes away things like some of the protections for shelters and licensing for unaccompanied minors and loosens, loosens kind of the rules around specifically the minors who come across the border. And I wonder if you would sort of give us your perspective on why, why that would be okay. Well, because right now you have 85,000 minors that are unaccounted for. We don't know where the heck they are. You think you think that uh, that's something as inhumane as maybe keeping them and teaching them, et cetera? How about letting them loose on the country and not even know where they are, who they're with? Well, aren't they? They doing? aren't they placed so, with shelters so, or family or sponsors? No, 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 no. They're not. No, there's eight. There's a there's a the report by the New York Times is there eighty five thousand minors that were let in. We nobody knows where they are. All right, that's inhumane. Okay, so what we try to do with this bill is say, look, you're an unaccompanied minor. We're gonna try to get you back to your family, back in your country of origin. Back to the people who love you, people that will protect you, not some unknown people here in the United States, like 85,000 minors. We don't even know where they are. All right. So, you know, you have to you have to look at what's really happening. This crisis at the border is out of control. Uh, the law says that if you come into the United States seeking asylum, you will be held. You will be held in the United States until your asylum hearing is, you know, is held or you will be held. In, in another country. The, the Biden administration just said, no, forget it, just, everybody just walks in. That's that's unacceptable. We well, actually, the, the Biden administration's new immigration rules are just that, staying in the third country before and applying sure. for asylum. That that sure. is that is the rules at the moment. Do you sure, I, I've got a bridge for you in, uh, in Brooklyn, by the way, uh, Glenn, if you want to buy it. Uh, don't ever listen to what the Biden administration tells you. Watch what they're doing. And they're not doing that, all right? Because uh, they they don't have the capacity. They're the ones that that invited everybody to come 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 in, and they're all coming in. And so they're being processed and they're being let go in the United States of America. Don't believe a word of that. Oh, everything is okay now. It's not okay. It's well, still just out of control. I, just for the uh, record. I'll do in fact to that. Uh, yeah. Just just for the record, I've never heard everything is okay now, and I've heard on all sides mm -hmm. people saying it's not okay, but. Okay. New rules do exist from the Biden administration trying to address those. That that's whether they're working or not is for you and your Glenn, colleagues Glenn, to say. Glenna, 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 come on. Okay, from day one. Okay, my Sec Secretary Mayorkas has said that the border is under control. He's been telling us for two years. So, you know, President Biden says there's no problem at the border. He doesn't even go to the border. Okay, so come on, really? Are you telling me that that the new rules are going to make are going to fix everything? Look, it's uh, it's his policies. It's obvious that he wants open borders. That's what the extreme left wants is open borders, which is all this chaos. By the way, we have about 5 million that we know that are in the United States. There's another 2 million. Okay, they, hold on. With, with 30, seconds, 30 seconds yeah, left for us to talk, I just want to stipulate that I've <laughs> never heard anyone want open borders. Um, your colleague, Senator Rick Scott, was here just a few weeks ago and, and changed from open borders to insecure borders on this program, which... Um, which I just throw out there because yeah. there's that what, one last one last question. You'll what, never hear him say open borders. It's what he's doing. Remember, never listen to what he says. Watch what he does. Okay. So that's where I'm going to disagree with you, Glenna. Go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> well, I gotta go because we have a, a a commercial to hit. But I do invite you back soon because we have a lot more Thank to you. talk about as we always do.
I think we do. <laughs> Thank you, Glenna. Thanks so much. Take care. All right, when we come back, the race is on to put Florida's new abortion restrictions to voters. is underway to get voters to undo the historic state abortion restrictions passed by lawmakers in the last two sessions. A petition drive to get that question on the ballot and two voters in November is supported by a number of groups and a political action committee for which Monet Holder is the chair. Monet, great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So how did you and other groups, and you can outline the groups who are involved so everybody knows, but how, how did you decide to do this petition process rather than another avenue? Sure. So, um, you know, we've watched closely what's been happening across the country, but specifically in the Florida legislature as it um, relates to uh, the attacks on abortion access and coming out of this um, 2023 legislative session in which you know, a bill was passed that will um, limit abortion, a six-week abortion ban, essentially. Floridians Protecting Freedom came together as a statewide campaign to amend Florida's constitution to protect Floridians' rights and the ability to make their personal medical decisions without government influence. So amending the petition, uh, amending, I'm sorry, the petition process for amending the state constitution is a very difficult process and, and should be by all accounts to amend a state constitution. So what you have to do is to collect enough uh, petitions, which is almost 900,000 to get on the ballot by February 1st. Did I get the date right? Yes, that is correct. That's a pretty so high hurdle. How, how are you going to do that? It is. So Floridians Protecting Freedom, let me just say, it is a broad coalition of community organizations, healthcare providers, advocacy groups, faith leaders, and grassroots organizations who support this. Um, and we all have networks within and outside of Florida. Um, some of the groups include Florida Rising, Women's Voices of Southwest, Southwest Florida, ACLU, and Planned Parenthood. Um, so not only will we have support um, on the ground, grassroots support, volunteer petition collections, but we will um, take other means and methods to gather these um, 900,000 petitions by February 1st. Okay, I am not a math girl, but you've got six months to collect a million signatures. Someone way better at math in their head than I are going to come up with, what, a several thousand a day uh, uh, petition signers. Is, is that, I'm going to ask you that again, is that even possible? It is. Um, I think, unfortunately, but fortunately, we have um, the expertise to get this done because we often have to take our concerns and the will of the people to the ballot. We've had successes in other ballot initiatives that coalitions such like ours have been a part of. So although it is a challenge, it definitely can be done. And what is most hopeful about this is that we have the support of the people. Um, we know that people do not want government interference in their personal decisions, their medical decisions, and want to see them themselves and their families have access to abortion rights. So we know 
know that not only a grassroots campaign, but a, a very intense um, petition collection campaign kicking off will be successful by February 1. So when you say you have the support of the people, I'm guessing you're pointing to some public opinion polls that do show a, a high level, a majority support for choice, medical choice, to a certain extent in, in abortion rights um, in Florida. Uh, and yet you have a legislature that for two years, lawmakers who were elected by the people of Florida for two years have made it more restrictive and more restrictive. So how, give me your perspective on how those two things can exist together. Yes, so um, you're correct. In, in multiple polls um, that have been done across the state, Floridians overwhelmingly support abortion access and oppose abortion bans like the ones currently in state law. The most recent polling shows that 64% of Floridians say that abortion should be legal in most or all circumstances. These are the same Floridians who advocated for their right to abortion access throughout the, um, the legislative process. Um, and unfortunately, their, their concerns have not been heard. So, you know, that energy, that synergy, that will of the people all across the state is something that we hope translates or that we know will translate into um, an affirmative vote for this petition, for this ballot amendment in 2024. Am I, re am I remembering correctly, was there such a petition effort last year after the first round of restrictions were passed? Um, not, not an effort. Um, that Floridians Protecting Freedom letter that I personally was involved of. But there, involved was, in. there was another petition process. Do you know what happened to that? No, I, I can't um, speak on, on, on the status of that. Understood. Okay, so do you have ballot language yet? And if so, can you share it with us? I do. So um, the, the ballot language is pretty simple. We wanted it to be clear and concise um, because our amendment will focus on limiting government interference with abortion before viability as determined by a patient's health care provider. And the amendment will not change the legislature's constitutional authority to require notification to a parent or guardian before a minor has an abortion. Um, the amendment would protect Floridians' freedom to access abortion and health care providers' ability to offer the care that they need. Um, the petitions are up um, for folks who want to review the exact language, see a petition, they're encouraged to go to FloridiansProtectingFreedom.com and there you will find the exact language and the petitions and ways to support this campaign. So what is going to be proposed for the Constitution is pr a choice of pregnancy termination up until viability, which um, 24 weeks is typically the week of viability in a legal sense where those legalities are in place. Is that right? So viability has been consistently defined as the point in pregnancy when the fetus can survive outside the womb. It's determined by healthcare providers based on the patient's individualized circumstances and considering the specific facts of the case before them. And that used to be prior to two lawmaking sessions ago, that actually was Florida law. And we've seen, incorrect, and, and, and we've seen different iterations of it. So today, abortion is banned after 15 weeks of pregnancy in Florida. If the Florida Supreme Court upholds that ban that is currently in legal challenge, then the 2023 law passed by the legislature and signed by the governor that bans abortion after six weeks will take effect, which we know severely restricts restricts abortion access even further, and that's not the will of the people here in Florida. And that ballot language, which has to be 75 words, which is why it needs to be very concise and, and short and clear, 
also has to be approved by the Florida Supreme Court. And the justices on the Florida Supreme Court, a majority of which have been appointed by this very conservative governor, uh, do you expect issues with that? I, th I think we're hopeful that the, the the will of the people will be upheld even at the Supreme Court level. We've put in a great deal of work to craft language that we feel is um, it would be acceptable to the Supreme Court and definitely restores the access that we have lost here in Florida. So we will see um, post-February 1 when um, the petitions are, excuse me, when the, the language is reviewed by the Supreme Court where they stand on it. Monet Holder, it is great to have you on the program and please do keep in touch with us on your progress. I sure will. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And we will be right back. You can always go to local10.com and find the This Week in South Florida section to see all of today's interviews and also reach out on Glenna WPLG, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and be sure to keep in touch because you know you are a very big part of this program. Thank you for being with us. Have a beautiful Sunday.